New Zealand international, Olympian and Liverpool defender Michaela Moore shares her story so far. We discuss her player pathway from Christchurch to the Bundesliga and beyond, positives in the women's game, pride in who she is today and prejudices that remain. Talking about her generation, how New Zealanders are bringing it all back home, shaping the future for women's football and leaving a legacy behind. This is the Minterview series. So this week we're stepping behind the red curtain. Michaela is a Liverpool and New Zealand defender. Thank you for joining us, Michaela. No, happy to be here. And we are, as always, joined by myself, David, Sean and Sarah. So first of all, Michaela, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Um, Just a short introduction. Yeah, so hi everyone. Um, My name is Michaela Moore. I'm a New Zealand footballer. Um, central defender, currently playing for Liverpool FC Women. So, so Michaela, uh, what we would uh, love for you to start talking us through your process of how you got to where you are now. So, as you mentioned, you're an international uh, women's defender, um, central with an I, not an E. So, what we would like to do is maybe um, get you to just talk about your upbringing in New Zealand. And there's a couple of interested, tr- interesting points that you've made uh, off pod is that uh, you grew up with co-ed um, football teams and you know you, you broke into girls football at the age of 14 can you tell us about your experiences growing up as a, as a girl in New Zealand and your um, availability to play the sport yeah so I grew up playing I probably started playing when I was four years of age my family just enrolled me in a, in a local club around the corner from from my house and yeah um kind of had a love for the game from the get-go um my sister played at the time too but she hasn't continued it on <laughs> as much as I have um but yeah I played with boys up until the age of 14 the club that I was at there was only a handful of girls um rep- yeah rep- representation and the team that I was in I was um, predominantly the only girl right up until yeah age 14. So you've talked about previously um how you felt like you were better so you knew you were the best at your age bracket regardless of gender if you want to call it that I'd like to um hear your experiences on how did the boys take that um because obviously you being the only girl in your team um must be quite difficult in regards to feeling a sense of belonging within a group maybe um and it'd be you know a great insight for us because obviously our, our culture is slightly different we don't really have co-ed uh, well when we were growing up we kind of do now but how, how did that integration happen and how did the, the the comparison between the two genders be able to sort of integrate in terms of playing with each other yeah I think even nowadays it's still a very common occurrence especially in you know the smaller cities and suburbs of New Zealand for it to be predominantly male-based um, when we were speaking football wise and so it wasn't it wasn't something that was unusual for me even at a young age even right up until 14 and something that I didn't really shy away from I think personally I felt that I was just as good as the boys whether they thought that or not I'm not sure but I never felt any negativity from them in particular but I've always been a very competitive individual and my mum could certainly attest to that um, so if anything, it only spurred me on um, to to really push on and make, you know, a career out of football. But yeah, I think looking back on it, um, 
it only helped me as well because, you know, boys do bring us a different element than, than girls. And as you progress up the age groups, they do become, you know, a little bit faster and, and a bit more physical too. So I think, yeah, it only aided, aided my development and I don't think it was a hindrance at all. Looking into those like early days and what sort of challenges, not in a negative way, but like in, like you said, in a sporting way and how that influenced you into the player that you are today. Can you, is there any like coaches or things like of that nature from those early years in New Zealand that really helped you grow and blossom? Individually, there's certainly two key male coaches that I had in, in my development as a young footballer, um, namely Tim Bush and Mike DeBono. They were hugely influential characters for me um, to the point where they would give me, you know, one-on-one sessions on a Saturday morning just to get that extra edge. So, yeah, I have a lot um, of thanks to give them um, and I continue to do so to this day when I see them, but, yeah. Fantastic. Hi, Michaela. In terms of coaches, do you find that you can gain something a little bit different um, to your game from a male coach as opposed to a female coach or do you feel that there is a difference or is that something that you think about um growing up when in in my younger years it was definitely male orientated it wasn't until I made the switch to a to a female side that I was actually my first female coach um and she, and she was also relatively young at the time so it was probably the first team where I actually felt you know, fully inclusive. Um, I think probably in my younger years when it was just the boys, I did, didn't did have a problem getting along with them because I, I was quite a tomboy growing up. But from that friendship side of things, I didn't, you know, hang out with them outside of football or anything like that. Whereas, you know, when I moved to, to an all-girls team, we, we hang out more, you know, after training or we would get – to training earlier to you know just have a kick around and a bit of fun um I also had a had a, another female coach um growing up probably when I was around 16 she her name is Alana Gunn and she was also influential she was probably the the first woman's coach that I had had who had you know a f- couple of coaching um certificates under her belt and so yeah I have her to thank as well but it's not as common and only since coming to Liverpool was my first experience at a, of a female coach at a higher level. With the boys and the girls, like you said about until you went to a, a girls team, maybe did your game, I guess, improve when you were in that environment or like much more or did you feel more comfortable, I guess, I'm trying to ask you. Um, like you said, you didn't really socialise um, with the boys after that. I'm, I'm always fascinated if boys can benefit from playing with girls at a younger age, if that makes sense, and what that can do for those players that eventually do go on it like should it be encouraged more in in those earlier youth development models which I think like Dave alluded to earlier no I think even just touching on that point it's brought something to my head is in those younger years the the coaches were generally parents and they were usually the parents of the boys and so I think that may have played a role in me sort of feeling like a little bit more of an outsider than when I progressed to a female team where she wasn't a parent, she was just, you know, a younger lady, you know, who also loved football and played on a Sunday herself, but took, you know, us girls during the week. And so it kind of fostered more of a, 
yeah, inclusive environment that was always, you know, welcoming and, you know, it was just all girls, coaching staff included. And so it was a, it's a very, you know, I have very fond memories from that time. So within within your youth career, I guess you'd call it, you played for Burwood, Avon and, and Coastal Spirit. In, in regards to you obviously saying maybe you felt a little bit of an outsider, how did you motivate yourself from the perspective of having a female idol? So I can imagine, you know, if your coaches are males and most of the people you're playing with are males, are you really looking for somebody who represents you between those ages? And, and who was that person in your formative years becoming a footballer? Yeah, I think certainly when I was young, I just purely enjoyed the game. And so I wouldn't, I didn't really care that I was, you know, competing with the boys or or anything like that. I just absolutely was obsessed with playing and and just loved, you know, getting out every Saturday and having a kick around. As I progressed to the throughout my career and through the ages, I think I certainly did look to, you know, more um, players in, in my in my sort of realm, like most of the football ferns, I would have to say, because I didn't have access to to players in Europe or, you know, what the girls had over here. So it was very localised to, to New Zealand. And luckily enough, we there was a little bit of exposure for the women's team back then because I do remember having posters of them on my walls and things like that. But I think it's even greater nowadays, which is... Who, who was your favourite poster? I was just going to ask that question, actually. Yeah, who, who are you looking up to at that point then? Um, Probably... um. Rebecca Smith, she was the captain, one of the captains at the time, but certainly players like Abby Ersig, um, Amber Hearn, Rhea Purcell, players that have been in the game a long time, who have, you know, done stints overseas. Um, Amber's played at Arsenal in her career, Rhea's currently at Tottenham, you know, like, there wasn't a big age gap between me, but, you know, now... I look back on it, they were certainly huge, influential players that, you know, I looked at and I could say to myself that's kind of the career that I want to do I want to be like them I want to play overseas I was gonna ask um, Michaela did they kind of give you the belief that it's possible to pursue this as a career kind of like watching them and you can not so much relation to them right being from your home country yeah and now being an older not an older player but you know an older player in that respect you can look back on it yourself and see how much of an influence it does have on the younger generation and the more exposure that they have nowadays. And, you know, I hope that it continues to grow and things like that because it does help when you only have, you know... I mean, as a young girl, I still did look up to male players as well. Like, the Premier League was on TV, so it's it was available. But having someone who's, you know, your gender and who you can, you know, look at in the mirror and say, that that's something that I want to do, I think... You know, it's relatable, isn't it? It's very relatable, yeah. Again, I know we're going to touch on some of these similar points about your playing style and stuff later on as you in currently, but I'm really interested in sort of how that developed early on through, like I say, through the co-ed. Now we're getting a bit more serious. Were you always a defender or was, is, is that, so can you tell us more about those early years and how you play? Yeah, in the early years, I was a right winger. So with the boys, I play on the wing. So I was actually pretty fast. I would consider myself to be still pretty fast, but in those days I was pretty quick. And 
I've never been the most technical player, so it was more, you know, like a, a kick and run and, and maybe a little feint to come inside and then have a shot. But as I've progressed through the years, I was only really a winger for a very short period of time. And then once I started getting into age group, um, the age group scene for both regional and um, national level, I got progressed back to a fullback um, and now even more so a central defender. Um, since coming into the senior setup, you've talked about rep, you know rep being represented by somebody you can look in the mirror. How important is that for a person to be able to have a and 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 not necessarily a like minded because you don't know who these people are at this point, do you? More of somebody that is representative of you. How important is that for some for a young girl between the ages of? eight and 14 who wants to be a sports person I think it's massive and nowadays you know with the access of social media the way it is and, and tv coverage of of tournaments and things like that for, for girls to be able to turn on their tv and, and see players at, at a world cup be it you know doesn't matter what country it's from just to be able to watch them you know on the tv but potentially also in their backyard is is massive and it can only if I look back on it and had even more exposure to, to the level of players that the girls have nowadays, it, it would be of a huge significance. So I hope that continues to grow and is even more accessible for, for young girls. So Michaela, for us on the outside looking in at what you do, it appears that the game has improved immensely and the the quality of 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 your career has changed uh, maybe from 10 years ago do you feel being within it that it is changing at a faster rate maybe over the last couple of years than it ever has do you feel like there's a real step up in gear I I think so and and I've had past conversations with with other teammates I want to name drop Rhea Percival again but she's someone that I'm quite close to on the national team and I think you can see it from the 2015 World Cup to the 2019 World Cup, how much growth there was within those four years. And I can only imagine how much growth there's going to be between, you know, that 2019 and the 2023 World Cup. Like it seems to double, if almost triple, how quickly it's it's progressing. And, yeah, the hope is that that can only continue because, yeah, the I think and we'll probably touch on it later, but as female footballers, we don't make a lot of money, so it's more about leaving a legacy for the girls after um, because we are still miles behind the men. Um, And, yeah, that's the most important thing that I look at. So, uh, correct me if I'm wrong here, um, you've played for Bearwood, Avon, Coastal, this is sort of your your, your youth, I guess what you'd call your youth years, as I mentioned before. But then at 15, you you went to the Under-17s World Championship, is that right? Tell us about that, because is this the first time you're representing your country now, you know, as a New Zealander? And and that's something, you know, very few people get to do regardless of what sport they play. What's that emotion, knowing that, especially, as you've mentioned, underrepresented as a female sports person, especially in football, what what goal do you take with you? We've previously spoken to Cece, former World Cup winner with Brazil, uh, Andrew McGrady, former Everton number nine, and they had the same sort of feeling about representing their team or their country that it was a personal belonging opposed to like a fame thing. It was more about b- 
belonging somewhere and you feeling as if that this is the place where you're supposed to be. Can you give us a more, I guess, no offence to Andrea and Cece, a more modernised understanding of what it is to represent your country uh, post-2000? Yeah, I think even at that young age, to, to don the shirt of your country is, is a massive honour and still to this day, and like it's the biggest honour that I have and probably will ever have. I think, you know, wherever country you're from, you have such an immense attachment to it because, you know, it's in a way crafted the person that you are because that's where you're from. And so to be able to represent not only yourself, not only your family and your friends, but also the entire nation is is a massive honour and one that I take immense pride in every single time. Does your feeling of, um, obviously you mentioned about maybe socially being an outsider up until the age of 15, 16, maybe as you started to get into girls-specific football, did it, did you feel more represent? Did you feel more belonging to New Zealand when you put the shirt on, opposed to maybe beforehand? Did you start to find that this is the place where I'm supposed to be? Um, and do you? Do, I don't want to say you, your pride gets more, but as you're representing the country, do you feel a, a greater, um, a greater sense of belonging to New Zealand the more you represent them? Yeah, I, I would have to agree, especially as I as I become you know, older as well and in my career develops, you, you realise how lucky you can be to represent your country because not everybody gets to and, and I know in certain countries it's even harder to because the population of girls playing is a lot larger. But yeah, there will be never anything for me that that replicates playing for your country on the world stage. It, it's an immense honour and it's something that, yeah, no matter what happens and where I go in my career, I'm always bettering myself for that team to, to represent New Zealand as the best in the best, you know, physical shape that I can. I've got a very simple question, like, and I'm very fascinated in what the answer's gonna be. Like, what's the step up in from club football, obviously in New Zealand, and then playing for your country, what's that like? Like that difference, is there, is there a difference? Can you like describe what it's like? I think that's something that New Zealand as a country is still, you know, specifically, even for the men as well, but more so for the women, is that the step up from club football is massive. And we don't have a, a league, we don't even really have an amateur league that, that, measures up against national football and so majority of our players play overseas and have to come over to Europe to ensure that our national team players are as best as we can be because if we stayed in New Zealand the reality is that we wouldn't be able to compete on the world stage because the quality just isn't good enough right now and and I hope in years to come that that progresses I know there's talks about trying to create a women's team that can play in the W League for women. But that's, you know, still just a conversation. And so that's probably the hardest thing is that it is a massive step up. And if you want to to play for New Zealand, um, for the senior team in particular, you do have to go overseas. Is it that jump to Europe that needs to be made, I guess? Um, or could, like, I know a, a lot's happening in the men's game at a club level um, over there. Is, is that happening as well, do you know, in Australia? Or is it a lot, like you say, a lot of those players from that part of the world are coming to Europe because that is where you need to go 
to get that development, I guess. Yeah. Um, I personally can't comment on Australia because I haven't, I haven't taken like, uh, that route either. I know that the W league is something that I do want to partake in in the future. Um, I think from a female's perspective, because they have that set up, they are probably a step ahead of us. Um, in New Zealand, it, it is a, a semi-professional, professional league that the, the girls are taking part in at this time of year now. Um, but in saying that, I know that a lot of the Australian girls are also in Europe, so it's a, a very similar situation. That similar pathway, I guess, like you say, like the players really. So that's it's dependent on that infrastructure. Um, is there? And again, like this is, I'm so naive in this. I've never been to Australia or that part of the world, but could there be a combination like again like I look at North America for example like being in Canada the NHL or the NBA or there's teams that cross the borders essentially um, do you think that could happen to build that infrastructure may, maybe with some New Zealand teams and build that up for women in that region to obviously improve the sort of competition because the talent's 100% there when you look across all the sports right it's just they need the opportunity to get there yeah I think that's the plan I mean with the current leagues that they have, the, the A-League for the men in particular has a New Zealand side, the Wellington Phoenix, and so that is a professional men's side. Um, the conversations that they've been having for a few years now is to get a woman's side, and I think that would certainly bridge a gap that, that we have, but there's still a lot to be done. Um, I But I think also in in saying that, I don't look at it as a negative to, to, to be coming over to Europe. Um, you know, Europe has always probably been the hub for football for a very long time. And you, you have the Champions Leagues and, and things like that that, you know, girls want to aspire to play in as well, and myself included. And so it's, it's not a negative to be over here. I, um, with you on that point, like with ne- like negativity, what well, I'm fa- fascinated with the world changing so much, and like there's more money going into the US game, for example, for both men and women, and then China as well, and there's a lot of people there, and like as long as those coaching styles, philosophy, philosophies, let's say, I think it's so cool and so fascinating because new ideas come out of that, and like new ways to play the game, and that always interests me, like different ways of like different concepts, and I love, again. Like the rugby that out of New Zealand thinks so popular, right? And they've got their own way of doing things, and like having that as an identity in like international football only excites me more because they've got to put their own stamp on it, right? Anyway, <laughs> um, I was I was going to say we've spoken to obviously David's touched on the fact that we've spoken to a couple of trailblazers of the '90s era. It feels like a completely different time now. Honestly, it could have been a hundred years ago. Um, and their stories were fascinating to all of us. Um, it was almost like a pay-to-play situation. Well, it was, wasn't it? And we were all really shocked by that. Um, and these were institutions that, at the time, we had money and were able to fund. How long do you think the institution of football, and this is like on a, on a, on a world level, um, can rely on the fact that women see playing as a privilege and therefore maybe don't have to push wages to a certain amount you know how how long can the institution actually hold on to that and rely on on the fact that women want to push through walls and and use it as a stepping stone for maybe the generations behind them coming up yeah I think that's going to be a an ongoing conversation for a long time but I in saying that like 
there are players out there who are it's dependent on the environment you're at for me personally I I make enough to survive and and to put a little bit of weight and that's all that I really need right now but I know that maybe there's players at Chelsea or Lyon who are, are in a better sort of situation and that's awesome that's what you want and I think the only hope that I can you know say and is that that continues to blossom and it filters out more so um I think the tough thing is that it does for me personally I see it as the men are going to have to to give to help the woman grow and then you know for it's going to have to be like a bit of a give and take sort of thing and if they're not on board then because at the end of the day it does all come down to money and if we're not generating it enough and people aren't interested enough then we need we're going to need the support of of the men's side to help it grow. And I think that's why you see, you know, I'll drop Leon and Chelsea again. I think the Leon setup, it's the men and the women are almost seen, seen as equals. And, and you see the success that Leon has had in the past years. I think that's not a silly coincidence. How, how do you feel about um, the facilities and the I guess the the platform that women are given in comparison to the men's game especially with uh, you know said I mentioned before about paying to play that's even if it was legal we've heard when we've heard from ZC that in Brazil when she was growing up it wasn't even legal for women to play so you, you we've made uh, we I say we the royal we there have been steps forward but there still seems to be this um this sort of fitting you into the box of men's football like this seems to be the same structure that's being moved to place women in the same structure so you know if you're playing for Everton there's Everton women if you're playing for Liverpool there's Liverpool women would it be potentially more progressive for women to have their own outlet not having to fit into the men's structure of the game and to have their own platform have their own league structures that are you know potentially different than the men's and how could that affect the growth of the sport um and if not why why wouldn't it what is it because like you've mentioned previously like there has to go hand in hand the men and the women have to give back and forth spoken like a true liberal new zealander that you know we're, we're completely politically aligned with that sort of we we'll give so somebody else can can benefit from it we think that's very important. Um, and I would love to know your insight on, is there a process in place where women could break apart completely from a, from the structure of a men's game? I don't think so currently now, no. I think it's still, we're still, you know, reliant on the support of the men and... Is that societal though? Do you think that's a that's an ingrained societal issue? That's not your problem. That's not your issue. You're you're, you're the person fighting those issues and involved in those issues. But is it a deep ingrained systemic problem that you're having to use a platform that you know is sexist in a way that people see the game as a men's game when it's just a game? It doesn't matter whether it's men's or women's. It's a game, and to some extent, you're being underrepresented in terms of the monetary value that you know you you put the same amount of effort in uh, but you don't get the same amount out of it yeah I, I agree with you but and also just saying that you can look at you know other sports as well I think it's just a 
a thing that is still ongoing and probably still going to go on for many, many years because potentially of a systematic thing. You look at the tennis in Australia at the moment, I'm guaranteed that the women are not making as much as, you know. You asked Asaka how much she made in, in comparison to, I think it was Djokovic he won again, yeah. so... Yeah, I think Wimbledon, we had that issue here, didn't we? I don't even know if it's if it's levelled out even. Same thing. It's still the same with the, um, like you mentioned tennis, it's the set, isn't it? The women have less sets than the men, which is, it's just, it baffles me. It's not like, you know, it's not like the women's game in football, how you only play 75 minutes, you know, and, and that's still a problem in sport though, isn't it, as a, as a concept? Um, I was going to ask, because obviously um, we've got an Olympian with us, Sort of. Thanks very much. How the- oh no, sorry, Michaela. Sorry. <laughs> you supported, aren't you? Like, I think supported, right? In thinking to compete at the Olympics, right? From like national government bodies. That's how it works in the UK. It's weird, isn't it, to think when you do bring in like the prize money and stuff, like how that all that works. I guess we don't know behind the scenes marketing or whatever, but like I'm sure someone's got some stupid justification. Not that it's right, but that that should be level. And, like, the Olympic model is, like, everyone supported under this national governing body structure, right? And it's all, like, it's all even keel, from my understanding. Can you speak some more about how that works, let's say, Michaela? Like, the sort of the Olympic side, like, is it you just receive bursaries and things like that from the government to obviously be able to do your training and go to these national centres? Yeah, so for the, yeah, NZ Olympic team, we fall under the barrier of high-performance sport. And so... High performance sport then give money to New Zealand football and then it, it filters down to us. And so it's a little bit more tr- trickier than just being obviously labelled as New Zealand football. The, the parameters that we have to meet for the NZ Olympic um, high performance yeah, governing body is a lot tougher than just um, yeah, the New Zealand football um, parameters so it's it's another challenge again in itself but when I think about that let's say you've got you've hit those parameters like you said um, to be a part of like the New Zealand Olympic team maybe like the FA could introduce some sort of policy for just clubs in general not men or women that they put let's say money into a part to develop both sides of the game equally but that comes from the FA and the clubs to play in the leagues maybe follow that Olympic model of like how they support those structures lower down at the grassroots levels to increase athletes' participation. And when people reach that, that they then, again, like you say, when you think about that concept from New Zealand and growing their own league, it's kind of the clubs are helping grow that, right? And then everyone at the grassroots levels benefiting from that money coming in from the men's and the women's game. So it's then even bar. I'm just trying to think of like creative ways of combining like the Olympic style with like professional football and like merging them, because like you say, when you compete with the Olympics, it's an even keel, isn't it? But when it's on football, it's all skewed and disjointed and weird because of these old, like Dave said, systems that have been put in place ages ago. It's like giving power to those FAs to distribute that money fairly, but it comes from the clubs who are bringing in the money. Again, it's just a weird concept thought that I've had with it in relation to that. And um, we're, we're talking about tennis, taking it back just with um, with bringing that up. Um, I'm fascinated recently with the Angel City FC. I'm really interested with your thoughts on that. Serena Williams being a massive investor in it. And the women in general, 
that are surrounding it and founding it. Um, it feels like a real tour de force, doesn't it? Um, how do you feel about that? I think it's awesome. When I heard about it coming out, I mean, I've never personally wanted to play in America, um, but when that all came about and, yeah, it sounds amazing. I think to completely, you know, nearly be governed by all women and the names that are involved, it's awesome. It's it's going to be a massive, almost revolution in, in female football. And also recently you see... Naomi Osaka, if I've pronounced her name wrong, my I'm really sorry. But she's also, you know, a co-owner in the NC Courage now. And so you had yes. sort of Serena Williams and then Naomi in the semi-final, I think it was, which is so cool. And and then you get the the co-sharing of, of that on socials between the t- between tennis and football. And I think that's such an important element of the women's just women's sport in general is that crossover between um yeah sporting codes and that you know yeah camaraderie that we have it's it's awesome I don't really know if you have that that on on the men like you know for men's sport in general so it's it's a very exciting time and something that I'm certainly eyeing very closely you've you've mentioned responsibilities and it's kind of like um want to move away from maybe your your experiences between the ages of sort of eight to sort of when you're now moving to Europe, um, do your responsibilities change when you make that leap into European football? Um, so you've moved to Germany, I think it was um, uh, Duisburg and Köln. These are the clubs that you play for in Germany. What is that? Sean's mentioned previously the step up in class. Um, how did you adjust to that step up before you made the jump to the WSL? And is it important that maybe you took a stepping stone to get to the to the to the English league yeah so prior to moving to Germany I was fortunate enough to sort of be a part of a a new setup that New Zealand football was rolling out um called the FFDP and I it's still running today actually um and it was with the idea of bridging that gap you know between club football and, and then an international standard and so yeah, it's pretty much a, a, a squad that's formulated and in, in based in Auckland, and it's the anywhere probably between the ages of yeah seventeen to twenty one. A, a group of girls that train together and play together um, in a boys league, and so I was a part of that for nearly two years, I think, before I made the jump to Germany, and I think that certainly helped because it was more of a, you know. A challenging environment I was training with you know players like myself week in week out but then I was also playing against boys in a I think we were playing in under 17 league but in Auckland that let that quality is quite high and, and then you're sort of anything above that you you begin to compete with pace and, and physicality and then you're not really you know playing the game so it was I think that certainly helped me in, in my progression from club football to international standard to then you know I by the time I left that I had outgrown it and I was ready to make that jump to to European football and I think then when I arrived in Germany there was less of an adjustment period because you know I was kind of training in a professional well replication of you know they were trying to replicate the environment and and the intensity and things like that so that certainly helped and then yeah when I came to Germany 
I mean, the Bundesliga is a tough league in itself, so there was that adjustment in, in to a different style of play, but I think, yeah, I, I didn't have too much of a difficulty. What influence did that move into Germany um, have on your playing career, uh, Michaela? Did, would you say it's, as it, as it you, had any influence? Did you just become it? really efficient? <laughs> Uh, to be fair, I, I think I certainly have. I, I've always been quite an uh, organised person, but yeah, German people are very strict, straight to the point. There's not a lot of fluff. Um, and I didn't really, yes, I didn't really struggle with that because I've, I've genuinely been quite a shy person. So there wasn't, you know, yeah, any, any difficulty there. But the German league is a strong league and a league that I enjoyed. Um, I would have, you know, there was some. It was a league that I would consider going back to as well because it is quite quite high in quality. But um, it was time for a change once I once I'd spent there, been there two and a half years, I think it was. And yeah, are we more fluffy then as a people? <laughs> I think scousers generally just take three or four minutes to ask Michaela a question rather than. I've kept some short today. <laughs> um, with what the coaching as well, I really want to get into that side of the game because I'm just like fascinated um, with it. Like in Germany, like is there different techniques or did you learn a lot there? There's any influential coaches you'd like to discuss at Duisburg or FC Köln that have had an impact on your career and development? Probably in that instance, it was a difficult period for me. Not because of the language barrier or anything like that, the, the style of play that I was playing in Duisburg wasn't really conducive to how I would have liked to play and also probably the style of, from the coach in particular. He was, yeah, he was direct and I think he knew what he was talking about, but at the same time, the delivery and is very different than anything that I've been used to. Even coming to England, you know, like the girls would ask me and, a lot of them almost shy away from, you know, the thought of potentially going there just because of how, yeah, harsh it was. But in saying that, no German team is the same, so I try not to say to them, or oh, don't, you know, don't discount that league in general. But, yeah, it was an experience that I certainly took many learnings from. What was that like to deal with then? You're saying, like, it's obviously a, a style that's not conducive to how you play. There were other foreigners, obviously, that we would, you know, try to discuss and, and things like that. But at the end of the day, the coach is the coach and, and he makes the rules. And if you want to play, just like in any team, really, you, you have to adapt your game and, and play how they want you to play. And so that's kind of what I took on board. Um, yeah, no footballer wants to sit on the bench. So and that's kind of what I communicated to the national team coach. And, and now Tom Smarney at the time, he completely understood so it's it's about getting what you can out of the trainings and the games while also, you know, helping your team to perform but trying to to see the positives that you can take to ensure that you're still developing but, you know, doing what the coach asks. Michaela, what does a transfer look like in the women's game now? Does it, when you're sort of going, say, maybe from Germany to Liverpool, can you paint us a picture about that? Sponsorship deals... Um, does it replicate the men's game? Are there, are there similarities? Is it completely different? For me personally, because I'm not a mass, like a high profile player, I think it's pretty standard. I have an agent that I work with, and when my contract was coming to an end, it was communicated to the club that 
I wouldn't be re-signing. Um, and then, yeah, you pretty much just go on the market and, and our clubs are able to see, you know, who's a free agent. And But I think it's different for different players. I, I can't – my experience compared to Sam Kerr's would be, I think, completely different. Mine's kind of boring. There's no, you know, figure attached to me. So, yeah. You've you, – you, you transfer from – um, from Germany to England was during the pandemic. Uh, so h- how have you mentally been able to cope with that? We'll touch back up on just maybe previously before you've moved to Europe, you know, being an Olympian. At Liverpool, you're number 15, is that right? Have you ever thought about requesting your Olympian number to just go on the back of your shirt? It's like the, so it's one thing that, you know, let's be honest, like, you know, billions of people on the planet and you're representing your country in the Olympics uh, but now you've moved away from just international setup I guess it seems at the up until this point it seems as if like New Zealand is is still uh, a higher standard in regards to because with the women's game international football did actually sort of have a higher regard as than club football for quite a while moving to Liverpool uh, being you know the second biggest club in the city how did you find being able to adjust during COVID to such a, a club with such a big name. Like, let's be honest, like, we're not going to shy away from the bias. Like, they are a huge club. How did you deal with being involved in such a huge club but not being completely involved in it because of the pandemic? It must be very, very difficult to to get your head around that, that move during that period. Yeah, absolutely. And I think the tough part for me was to I had made the commitment to Liverpool very early on last year in fact you know prior to the end of my season earning in Germany so I knew that it was a happening thing but it wasn't it could never be made public until my visa came through and then obviously there was delays with that because of COVID and so there was this period of time where I'm you know finished with Duisburg but not officially with any club so a lot of people were saying to me you know where are you going what's happening there was it was probably two or three months where I was you know just waiting for everything to come through and sitting idle in a in a hotel in Dusseldorf waiting for my visa to come through and then for it to all be able just for it to all go public um (laughs) And I couldn't go home because of COVID. You know, I had to get the visa and I had to be present to attend the yeah, yeah the meetings for all that and things. So it was a very challenging time. But at the end of the day, it was a another big move in my career. And I'm, I was very excited about it. You know, like you said, Liverpool is a massive club and it has a lot of following worldwide. So my social media did blow up a little bit when it went public, which was pretty exciting. But yeah, it's, it's, it's almost been, you know, one of those dream scenarios that you think back to as a kid, like you, you want it to happen and you dream of, you know, Oh, I want to sign for a club. And at the time you'd say Premier League, cause I don't remember what the women's was called, but to, for it to become a reality is, is pretty amazing. Yeah, I was going to ask more specifically, sort of like, what was that feeling like once you've signed on the dotted line to kind of like, again, like, I'd be jealous that you're playing like for a, such a high profile club. Like, I'd love to be able to do that. Like, that feeling, because obviously, again, we've talked about New Zealand and playing co ed, and then you've moved, 
you've gone to play with ladies in New Zealand and then you're playing for the national team which is obviously a great achievement and then you come to Europe and then you make that next step to what's a really competitive league with lots of big names right it's it's kind of indescribable in a sense and I want to be able to put words to it sometimes but sometimes I just have to sit back and just kind of take a breath because it is you know it's it's awesome and when I actually have these conversations with people like yourself, it is almost grounding in a sense because it's you don't really think about it because at the end of the day, it's my job and, and, and I just play it because I love it, but you don't think of the wider things majority of the time. So, yeah, to have signed for such a massive club it is, is amazing. And it's not only that, like when I signed my first professional contract in Germany, I was also, you know, very excited. But because Liverpool has such a massive name, even back home, like people that didn't really know me were like, oh, this this female footballer signed for Liverpool. And so there was sort of like I had a couple of interviews from, from sources back home because that's the sort of pull that it brings as well. And so it's almost, you know, throw me out there even more so because I'm not I have I'm not playing for for Duisburg in Germany anymore which people have no idea where that is but she's actually you know playing for Liverpool but there is that association with the men's side then obviously but at the same time like that's that's still it's amazing it it is a fantastic city you know club aside it's a fantastic city so um what we would like to know, you know, you are on, uh, you're with three Evertonians right now. Uh, we're not going to sort of talk too much about, you know, the, the the differences between the men and the women's game at that level. But what we what we we do find that maybe we don't we're not able to find as much content about. And you've already mentioned that the women's game seems more. There's a overall goal not just playing football that's not the overall goal of women in the game there seems to be this higher level of um, understanding of what you're doing there seems to be like a progress a roadmap to where you're trying to go and there's a moral obligation as well to you playing your sport the the men's game is quite rivaled like you know i'm sure you've lived in the city now for for over well nearly a year over a year so what's what's that what's that in the women's game because it surely if the women themselves are so much a very tight knit as players, regardless of who they play for. Is it is it interesting to to get that derby, if you want to call it, atmosphere because of that connectivity you've got as people opposed to just footballers? Yeah, absolutely. I think I am still, you know, learning a, a, about that culture that is between the two sides, and and I've played in one derby so far myself, and. I, the girls, you know, I said to them, oh, it's probably like me playing Australia because I said to them, you know, Kiwis and Aussies have a big rivalry and, and the Scouser and our team was like, oh, no, even more so. And I was like, oh, <laughs> she's, she's, you know, she, Missy Bokens is a Scouser through and through. And so, like, for her, like, the Everton, you know, Liverpool derby is, like, the biggest thing. And she actually, you know at the time Vicky at the time was like asked her to speak about what it means to her and 
what I got from what she said was, oh, it's, you know, it's similar to when I play the Aussies. Like, you don't want to lose to the Aussies, and she doesn't want to lose to the Blues. So it's kind of that same sort. So that's kind of the connection that I made. I think it, it helps me understand, you know, that side of things a lot more. I guess it's important, isn't it, to to involve yourself in the culture, whether you're a red or a blue, as a player, especially, like, we know watching football, like, you know when a player's not up for it, if you want to call it that, you know when a player's not understanding the, the, the environment they're in, whether it's men or women, whether it's any sport, you can tell there's, like, a an aura of that individual, maybe they're overwhelmed by it. Do you find embracing it and having somebody who is from the city play for yourself... And and a, and a fan as well, you know. Do you, we 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 have had a discussion in regards to Tom Davis, who plays for Everton, um, about scousers within the Everton team. Is it important for you to have a scouser within your within your Liverpool team? I think so. Yeah, absolutely. I think it kind of comes back to that thing that we touched on earlier about the mirror and, and you know having be able to see it. And I think for me, having Bo in the team she she represents what it means to be a Liverpool player, you know, through and through. And, and many coaches have said the same thing, her work ethic and things like that. It's next to none, especially in a derby game. And so, yeah, it definitely, I think, helps to have someone like her on the team. And it's for me, it's the same when, when we play the Aussies. I think it's the same sort of passion that you have. Like, it's... It's a do or die match. It doesn't matter if it's a friendly because no matches are friendly. So I think even when we haven't played Everton in a friendly, but if we we did, like, it would be just like you know in the County Cup when we played them. I think it can come with it's like a double edged sword sometimes, isn't it? Because the person that maybe represents all of us on the pitch, you know, aka you know the the local, it it's almost like the the pressure is tenfold isn't it you know so if they have an off day it's like well why 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 did they why did they not know how they should play because we're all feeling it you know so there's a nice balance that you've got to have isn't there that having that sort of respect for them and 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 taking that and and the funny funny that you say that too is because Bo is someone that embraces embraces that twofold and I can remember that Everton game we lost but it was one of the best games that she's played all season because that's just, you know, she really took it on board and, yeah, it was awesome to see. And I definitely, you know, took things away from her in that game in regards to, you know, the Derby sort of scenario. After that experience, you've recently been recovering from an Achilles injury, haven't you? Um, I would like you to just just explain to us how mentally difficult that is during covid maybe that you can't train as much um or you're isolated to a specific area or that your country has sort of aided you in that rehabilitation process talk us through that as people who really let's be honest you know the worst thing that could happen to me is i have to take a couple of days off work you're out of your hobby completely and you're also out of your love and you're also out of your job so you're like combining all these different mental states to have to then deal in a process with something that nobody, nobody, none of us have actually been able to deal with totally across the globe with with, the, with coronavirus. So, talk talk to us about your your rehab and and how that process has worked between the UK and New Zealand. Yeah, so the, actually, it was you know in in twenty nineteen that I did the 
injury, so I was. I'm sorry. No, you're fine. So it was. I was fortunate that it wasn't in in this time because it could have been actually a million times harder than it was. So yeah, the injury I sustained three days out from our first game. So I probably could touch on that more. So if that's what you're after, yeah, but, sure, yeah. Yeah, that that Senior World Cup was one that I had been preparing for for a very long time and obviously one that was in my sights prior to even signing my first professional um, contract in Germany. So that was kind of the process of the last four years. I had attended the, the World Cup in Canada, but I was very young at the time. So I was just, you know, a, a young bench player observing, you know, the scenario and, and what the World Cup has to offer. So this time around in France, I, I really wanted you know, to take part and and work hard for a starting spot. And and leading into it, I felt very confident in doing so. I had been playing regularly. We had a really good game against England, um, yeah, right before we beat them 1-0. And and then, yeah, I ruptured my Achilles three days out before our first game against Holland, which, yeah, was probably... The most devastating moment of my career to date. What, what did it feel like when you when? Because obviously you have a lot of. You don't know what it feels like until you do a certain injury, isn't it? An Achilles injury is a pretty high sort of high intensity level injury, isn't it? It's pretty sort of severe. So how did it feel, and how do you um, move away mentally from the? I guess players get this sort of recurring worry of injuring themselves again. How do you mentally? put yourself in a mindset to not worry about that injury and, you know, move away from that memory of it happening? Yeah. Um, I think that just comes with time and that's something that I've learned is, yeah, I think the hardest thing when I did it was I had personally thought if I ever did do an injury as a female footballer, it was going to be my ACL. Touch wood, that, that doesn't happen. But... Yeah, because it was so common common, and it's, you know, it happens all too frequently actually in female footballers. And so it didn't even occur to me that the Achilles, especially at my age, it's more of a degenerative injury that happens later on in careers. So there wasn't sort of that exposure that I look could look to um, to see, you know, players that had come through it female-wise. However, Kershawny, who was at Arsenal at the time, had actually ruptured his Achilles, I think, a year prior to mine, and he had actually put out a little mini documentary. And so I actually ended up watching that and, you know, seeked inspiration from him. But nowadays, and when I was returning to play, it took me a long... There was a lot of unease about doing, you know, obviously the action that I did when I performed, you know, when I ruptured my Achilles and... Yeah, it only comes with time. You learn to just trust the process that you've been doing for for the period of nine to 12 months. And even now, I have to ensure that I'm continually, you know, doing the rehab that I've been given because it's going to be something that I have to deal with for the rest of my career to ensure that I stay on top of that, you know, doesn't occur again. The re-rupture rates are, are lower for Achilles than they are for ACLs, but, you know, it's still always there. So it's just ensuring that, yeah, I continued to, to to keep everything strong around that area, and yeah, try not to think about it too much. Because if you do, then you just end in a in a bad spiral. Yeah, it's, it's probably does not me bringing it up on a podcast, end of the. <laughs> Describe <laughs> that on. to us, please. Yeah, go on, Sean. 
<laughs> no, yeah, um, away. I'll take you away from the treatment table a little bit. But what I want to bring awareness, and it's still in relation to it a little bit, but it's like a, a different idea. And what you've shared off part was, I was so fascinating that New Zealand's national team helped you with the, the World Cup injury, didn't they? And can you shine, like, shine a light on, there's, there's definitely an opportunity for girls who may not have had the same scenario as you, right? And may have not got the right support. And I want to bring awareness to that, basically, because I think there's definitely an opportunity for someone who's listening who may do something about it in the game, whether that's now or in the future. Uh, can you kind of dis- discuss what happened with your, not necessarily the injury, but the support you got, which was fantastic, and um, where there's opportunity for, obviously, there's gaps, isn't there? I, I definitely see gaps where, let's say, may, well, a, a girl who may not get the right support and may have to put stop a career at that point, which isn't right, is it, when you think about it? No, absolutely. And I, it's actually something that I look back on and think, and people probably think I'm crazy for it, but I say if I had to have ruptured my Achilles anywhere, it would have been at that World Cup. And not only was I, you know, within the World Cup FIFA setup, so I had FIFA-accredited surgeons who operated three days post-rupture um, in France with, you know, he was amazing, to, to then when I returned home have the support of the, you know, New Zealand football governing body and high-performance sport to ensure that I had yeah the the best help at, at hand t- to get ensure that I was back as soon as possible and I look back on it because had I had ruptured it um under Duisburg could it have been a different story I think yes um the New Zealand football you know staff certainly would have tried to help as best they could but the money wouldn't have been there the support wouldn't have been there and Unfortunately, at Duisburg, there wasn't a great deal of medical support. So I was fortunate enough to, yeah, have access to High Performance Sport in New Zealand. And they're, you know, they look after every athlete pretty much that is competing at a high level, no matter what, you know, sporting. I'm like, again, i naive in like these thoughts and not as well studied but something I will look into more like after speaking to yourself but like you you alluded to there with Duisburg and obviously that support do you think more should be put on clubs to look after players and not have that obviously it's great that New Zealand in your instance helped you out but imagine like you say like if you've like done it outside and you didn't get that support from like let's say if it happened at Duisburg would there be any conversation do you get any conversation or like would you know how how does that work? In saying that the medical setup in Germany is very very good, it is a completely different you know way of doing things compared to New Zealand. But the support was was very good from a financial point of view. I was still able to to get money and get paid a, a certain amount of my salary, and there was real really no problem with me getting that. Um, so that that was amazing. I think that's like. Germany as a country have a very good healthcare set up for, for, for not only, you know, just the general public but, but players as well. And but from the club's perspective in relation to, you know, the men's side at Duisburg, I think the standard is probably a lot lower. There's not as many people involved and yeah, I don't like to think too much what it would have been like had I not, 
you know, been under the New Zealand... Yeah, and I'm not trying to take you down this path. I just want to highlight, yeah, that... It's not an uncommon occurrence either. It's, you know, exactly. like players even I've, I've had conversations with in England have had similar experiences where the female side couldn't actually, you know, foster the medical treatment. They had to go to the men's side to get it. And so, yeah, I think it is an ongoing... Yeah, that's definitely onus on the clubs to kind of give that for both men. Because at the end of the day, your body and you're putting it on the line to perform for that club in their name. So that support should 100% be there for every player, right? We've, we've mentioned that disparity of just like platform, I guess, um, between the men and the women. Growing up in, in, in New Zealand and, and the philosophy that New Zealand worldwide gives to sports people. Um, our understanding over in the UK is New Zealand is one of those places that gives equal opportunity. Is that your experience or is that maybe a bit of a stereotype because New Zealand is quite a liberal country? Do we just kind of shoehorn that opinion into, into sport or is it true? Do um, you as a, a female footballer, do you get given an opportunity by society, by New Zealand society to perform to, to your sort of, to reach your ceiling, to break the glass ceiling of just even being a, a female or being a young person even a teenager do you do you get that elevation from New Zealand as a, as a country I think we do I think as countries go I'm very fortunate and I think a lot of people would you know you can even like football aside quickly take it to the COVID situation like so many people I've spoken to say oh we want Jacinda instead of Boris and I go well I couldn't agree more but you know like I'm very lucky to to be from a (laughs) yeah auntie Jacinda very yeah lucky to have come from from a country like that and you like football wise we're under an agreement you know we have an agreement with the all white set is you know pretty much near the same in terms of payment in terms of treatment in terms of things like that and so we're extremely lucky like that's awesome I don't know how many countries have you know equal um, parity and a lot of things like that so I mean that's only a very recent thing I think maybe it was 2018 potentially but yeah with that then um, I guess maybe your experience as a young female has not been maybe as um, maybe you wouldn't have had as many negative experiences because of where you grew up as if you would have if you grew up somewhere else where maybe female sport wasn't as encouraged or as, as integrated with male football. Um, have you had any experience of underrepresentation and, and sexism within the game since you moved outside of New Zealand? Not, not really. I mean, you always get some people in your comment like I've had random DMs throughout my years saying female shouldn't play football but you get that all the time like it's just when you're good you get that though Michaela like when you are breaking those ceilings you always get people who want to bring you down right doesn't matter whether you're a football or a tennis player you know when you know you're achieving when people are trying to bring you back down to the place where you've come from does that spur you on to to keep thinking like well I'm gonna change these people's minds or because you've mentioned that you are a representative person of your country and of your of your gender, like now you're showing these people that well, I don't want to fit into your box. I'm going to fit into my own box. Whatever that is, I don't care what you think about it. Yeah, and that's certainly something that I've 
been able to continue to almost mold more so as I've grown up and, and even being you know away from New Zealand I think that's helped foster the how I represent myself and how I carry myself not only on the field but off it because I'm not in that you could say bubble wrap of protection from my country I'm, I'm a million miles away I only really you know have me myself and I to, to deal with everything that comes at me even though I, I have tremendous support from back home but it's you know I'm just me over here I don't have family or that that connection. Michaela you're a huge advocate um, as a public figure for equality and inclusivity um, you are a massive advocate of the LGBT community and I fully respect that. Do you think your club support you um, could they do more? And that comes from, I suppose, the women's perspective. Um, obviously, you experience that on a day-to-day basis. Um, and how do you think that transcends into the men's game? Um, and what more do you think could be done on a sort of internal level? Yeah, absolutely. Um, that's only something that I've really probably come to terms with the last three or so years. I've really, you know being comfortable with how I identify and and wanting to be someone in the public figure that, you know, girls too back home can see who maybe identify in a similar manner. Coming to Liverpool, I think I felt even more included in in society. Like a, a little thing that I've never experienced in Germany before was this year we, there's a rainbow laces sort of campaign and I immediately jumped on board with that. I chucked them in straight away. That's something that I've never, you know, taken part in before. And the club actually, I think, really got behind that. And, and our captain also wore wore the, the, the rainbow colours in her band. And I think in the female football community, both on the field, it's very accepted. But also off the field, we have a large, you know, LGBTQ plus support network and a lot of fans who also identify the same. So I think that helps, yeah, foster a really safe environment. Um, and, yeah, football is definitely a major component of that. But on the men's side of it, I think we touched on that, you know, previously it's something that's still got um, a long way to go. I think it has a lot of negative stigma and you don't see a lot of of gay men you know proudly identifying in the football community which is yeah sad in in itself we're recording this podcast mid-february so uh, recently carlton cole i don't know if you heard him speak um on bbc he was talking about his experience with thomas hitzelsberg as a gay man and obviously with him being in the dressing room at west ham and he was openly sort of off off the cuff sort of very very candid about his explanation of maybe he didn't create the right environment for that person to feel comfortable from what it sounds like you're saying as women just women in general have created a safe, safe space for each other to feel and be the way that they should be with each other which is how everybody should be um what what could what what, what one thing do you think the men's game could learn from creating that safe space what could have Carlton Cole and knowingly saying that he should have maybe done something different or he he did he wasn't aware what he should have done different and now looking back on it it's reflective 
what one thing do you think that the the men's game could take from the safe space uh, that the women have created for that community i think what the women do and what i've experienced from such a young level also on the national you know for the national team it's that was probably the first team that i was a part of where i really felt like i could be myself was it was you were just accepted for who you are and i think and back then there wasn't, you know, massive conversations about it because we just acted like it was normal because it is. But even, like, nowadays, like, in, in this Liverpool team, it's not frowned upon. There's no snide comments about it. And I think that's potentially what happens in the men's side too much is there's a lot of joking about it. It's, it's not a... And that makes it an unsafe environment because people are less likely, you know, to to come out and and proudly identify if they're going to be brought down for it. Nobody wants that. And in the the women's game, we don't do that. We almost, like you say, do the opposite and and hold them on a pedestal for being brave enough to do so. Whereas (laughs) the men, yeah, yeah, yeah. and and embrace it and, yeah, act like it's a normal thing because it is. Whereas in the men's game, they don't do that. I think it's a fan culture as well in the men's game, isn't it? Again, it transcends from the, from the stadium, you know, from from the terraces onto the pitch. It would, I imagine, it would be absolutely excruciatingly difficult if you were a man. I would probably feel exactly the same. And it will take time. I mean, once I imagine it would be like a ricochet effect, you know, that it it will happen one day. But I think it will. It would almost need them all at the same time to do it in order that you know sort of just knock on effect yeah i think it's like when i look like when you combine this these thoughts with like the co-ed years of your younger youth maybe of a certain age with education like a lot of even all of us go through in school about different sexualities and stuff i think combining that more should be done using sports really um, especially when kids reach a certain age, to kind of break down those barriers and like look at it in this way, like we discuss about um, women, like yourself, well, obviously more more CC'd and having those role models and just be persistent and it's those hard nosed sort of if I can call them that, that push through those barriers. And there's not really there's been the odd man like Justin Fashion who but then committed suicide. And it's like maybe there's guys out there because it hasn't been normalised yet. The, the the next generation keeps coming through and it's like it's not possible in a way and you do need those rely on those trailblazers right to break down those barriers it's only with exposure that it's you know you're going to decrease the stigma around it because and that's the thing when kids are exposed to it at a younger age then it becomes you know that normal it's it's not an un- unusual uh, occurrence or an environment it's just it is what it is there's no like oh you know what why there's there's no questions why because they've just been brought up in it and it they've been exposed from a younger age yeah like with a world cup as well you think of how much you've been influenced as a kid in a great way like it's such a great platform internationally around the world it can make such a huge difference with like that one message and imagine fifa doing something like that for the world not just leaving it to all these countries to get on with their own i know there's a lot of bureaucracy surrounding it all but it's a great platform right like governments use world cups and olympics to push their agendas right and like let's do it for something positive i'd say in the future you've um you've highlighted the importance of having those role models um 
and I know you, you, you've spoken as if you're like 45, Michaela, all the way through this. You know, you, Michaela's <laughs> 23, 24, so she keeps saying old and, and it's making me feel very old when you say that. Yeah, so, <laughs> so the, that elevating the women's game through, we, we uh, I personally, like one of, one of my personal favourite journalists is, is Kate Abdo. You know, she's, she's multilingual, she's intelligent, she's been given the platform by a mainstream media company and it is just about giving the platform to the to, to individuals and, and letting i guess letting them have the availability and having the gateway to show their talent isn't it women should have that gateway the same as men to show their talent um myself i'm probably in a similar mold to the carlton cole comment where i i want you to educate me um I'm sure Sean is, is is the same, and and Sarah even from being a different country and how you've grew up with the game, and what I would like us to finish on before we sort of, you know, come around our quick fire questions, which we'll bring up to you shortly, is is if you wanted anything to any particular certain situation to be able to elevate the women's game more, what one thing would you choose to get that get that platform? So is there anything particularly that you think specifically needs to be improved in the women's game to take it beyond the platform it currently is? I think it's just more, yeah, equal opportunity and, and equal exposure. It, it's it's not... It's not a what problem fix. No, it's, 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 a, it's a cumulative set of things, but the... Yeah, the more opportunity, the more support, the more exposure we get, it's only going to continue to, you know, elevate the game, interest other people who have may, you know, only been in, interested in the men's game prior. And it, it just comes down to, to people, you know, taking a gamble. And, but not even that, like, it's, it's just about, yeah, wanting to put women on the same same pedestal as the men. Why why are we still having this question, you know? I find it really interesting just exactly on that and we'll round it up, but that that you said that it will take the men to help the women's game. And I think vice versa. And it's really interesting that when you put it sort of flipping it both sides that they can help you, but you can also maybe experience sort of you know, share those those moments that you have and how you've sort of evolved. It's almost like you you would be giving them a helping hand at the same time. So I find that fascinating. Michaela, we're we're, we're moving on to some serious questions now. You've had the easy out, <laughs> so we're going to just jump in. Don't think about these. One answer or as short as you possibly can. You can have one piece of art in your home. Art can be cultural. It can be significant to you. What would it be? I'd probably get my sister to do a painting. <laughs> oh, wow. I was going to say plugger. Picasso or something, but that's Michaela, far more plugger. creative. <laughs> plugger, yeah, go on, go for it. She would, she would love that if I, if like, and I would love, like, she's, she's a very creative individual and I could probably say something way more out there and way more crazy, but yeah, that would be awesome. So my next question is, why do you not have a, piece of your sister's artwork <laughs> did it take yours to ask you that question do. it's like a small little like abstract piece of work that i do have but i mean like a massive one for like my house one day yeah um, your experience in liverpool so far is um 
my bedroom. <laughs> <laughs> My apartment. I haven't really. COVID has halted all like uh, yeah adventures. This one so far. This one. This one's the most important one for me. Um, how do you drink your coffee? Um, white, like just white. milk. Yeah. Jacinda Arden. Auntie. Any footballer, past or present, who is your centre back partner? PK. Nice. <laughs> One bit of advice for anyone recovering from long-term injury. Day to day. Your ideal first gig back after COVID. 660. If you do read, recommend us a book. The Power of Now. Name one of New Zealand's hidden secrets. If I said that, then that'd be telling. Ah, <laughs> oh, cool customer. Um, and the final question is: uh, What score was the last men's Merseyside derby? No comment. <laughs> <laughs> Michaela's signal is suddenly cut off. Michaela is we've lost her um, it's now just the three of us talking Michaela it's been such a pleasure having you come on and educate us in regards to your pathway um, and your development to um, the place where you are right now and we as much as we don't wish you as much success with the team you currently with we do wish you personally as much success as we possibly can um, and we'd love to be able to speak to you again um, in the coming months or in the in the next couple of, in the next year especially after Covid yeah, no, absolutely. It's been my pleasure as well. Thank you for having me.